but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough everybody welcome back to the body serve i'm jonathan and i'm james i don't even know where to start as far as a regular intro to a body serve episode these are completely different circumstances than we're used to recording under right we're facing a very different world than we did the last time we recorded an episode and you and i have struggled for a few weeks now trying to figure out what we needed to say, if our voices were important to be heard, if it was more important to observe and amplify people who are doing transformative justice work. And finally, I think we've organized our thoughts and we're ready to put something out there. Mm -hmm. The point at which we decided, well, yes, we're going to go ahead with an episode and actually being ready to record an episode, there was a gap there because it, it just takes a while to make sure that we come at this with a, a measured and frankly emotionally stable perspective as well. We're going to start with a brief recap of some of the events that precipitated this most recent surge in in protesting in the United States because of police brutality. And then we're going to get into a strictly tennis portion of the episode discussing some of the ways in which tennis players and tennis officials and those within the greater tennis community have responded to what's going on. And then we're going to finish the show with a somewhat separate segment where we kind of put everything into context as to why this is all happening right now. The reason why we designed this episode this way is because every time we do something that's overtly political, we get folks coming up in our mention saying, you know, oh... You know, I just want this strict tennis stuff. Well, if that's what you want, listen to the first half of the episode, leave, because we don't want to hear about it. <laughs> yes, just dip out. You don't have to tell anyone. We literally, Most of all of us. <laughs> we literally could not have made it easier for you with this episode. Right. So before we get into the tennis stuff, I just wanted to give a brief timeline about where we are and how we got here over the past few months. This is obviously a watershed moment in a long, long, centuries-long history of anti-Black violence, both psychic and physical, in the United States. But over the past few months, things have flared up in a way that certainly anyone our age has never been alive to see. On February 23rd, in Glynn County, Georgia, Ahmaud Arbery was pursued and murdered by a father and son. The video did not leak until May 5th, and interestingly, it was leaked at the behest of one of the shooters, the father, it was a father and son team, the attorney of the father leaked the video at his request. And early in May, this video made the rounds on Twitter. People were watching it. It's graphic. I actually have not watched the whole thing. Suspects were not arrested for 72 days because absent the video, it seemed like there was not, really not the interest on the part of the DAs to prosecute. And even when their video leaked, it took a lot to get people arrested. So now there are three in custody, all three charged with felony murder. 
On March 13th, in Louisville, Kentucky, Brianna Taylor was shot eight times in her home by police who were executing a search warrant. Neighbors and Brianna Taylor's family alleged that there was no knock and no announcement by police, which prompted her boyfriend, who is a licensed gun owner, to shoot. No charges have been filed against police officers to this day. On May 25th, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Again, the entire incident was filmed. He said, I can't breathe at least 16 times on tape. This horrific event sparked immediate protests in Minneapolis, and very shortly after, protests across the entire country, Canada, Europe, New Zealand, all over the place. The medical examiner in Minneapolis cited pre-existing conditions that contributed to Floyd's death, ruling out asphyxiation or strangulation, and an independent autopsy disagreed with those findings. On May 29th, four days later, charges were laid on Derek Chauvin, third-degree murder, later amended to second-degree murder, and on June 3rd, the three other officers were charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. So that's how we got to, to this particular place. Of course, we have seen a string of police shootings, I mean, for, for decades, but the tipping point in this present movement was Trayvon Martin's murder in 2012, which was not by a police officer, but by a neighborhood watch officer. And in 2014, the deaths of Mike Brown and Eric Garner. And none of those events have created the utter disruption and upheaval that the past few months have. So combine all that with a pandemic, with people being out of work, without health care, financially strapped, feeling like the government has abandoned them in a very serious time when black and brown people are dying at a disproportionate rate of COVID-19 compared to the white population. This is what precipitated this incredible challenge to racism across the world. The fact that traditional means of escapism aren't available right now to folks who would not want to pay attention, be it sports, be it going to the movie theater, be it being able to just go outside and do things as you normally would. These are not normal times. The news cycle cannot refresh itself every day or two to then put these stories on the back burner because this this is on everybody's minds. There's nothing else. And now we get to tennis, where, like everyone else, tennis players are out of work, they are human beings, and tennis fans have expected players, and especially black players, to comment, to support, to show what their true position is on this. Black players are doing a disproportionate amount of labor here, right? So I, I want to be careful on what we, what we put on black players, that we don't criticize people for not speaking out or not speaking in the way that we would like. Also, the discourse coming from the tennis community and the players puts into perspective what we expect of folks along racial lines. Because we don't blink an eye in questioning whether a black player should speak about what's going on, but we're quick to defend white players who don't. So it's, it's never been more clear to me just how little we expect of white people when it comes to anti-racist work. The onus, and it's been a centuries-long onus, for black people to be the ones 
solely responsible for undoing the centuries of oppression that are now so deeply enmeshed in all systems of society. Of course, there were many tennis players who were willing to do that emotional labor and fight for what they believe in. Naomi Osaka and Coco Gauff have gotten so much attention recently because of how vocal they have been on anti-racism activism that, especially as a 16-year-old, it's, it's just amazing that someone who someone can find the courage to speak like that to people like Roger Federer, to show up at a rally and articulate her feelings so clearly. With these two young women, like we have clearly found the, the stars that know how to approach this historical moment. And in the case of Naomi, this comes fresh off the heels of her being named the highest paid woman athlete in the world. And so many times we see athletes, once they've achieved that kind of financial status, that kind of celebrity, isolate themselves more from political issues rather than engage with them. And Naomi, to her absolute credit, she is still maintaining full autonomy over everything in her life, despite her rising fame, and is able to find her footing within this movement. The first clue is that she posted an Instagram story from Minneapolis. So she got herself to Minneapolis those first few days of protesting, then got to LA for the same thing. And it was clear that Naomi was on this. She was going to say what she wants to say. And I wondered throughout this, you know, what does that say about being a young tennis star these days? What did her agent say? What does IMG have to say about this? Do her sponsors care? Do her coach and parents care what she's saying? And it, I think it's clear that her parents support very much what she's saying. But it, you know, it, it is still unusual to see a tennis player especially speak out so clearly on an issue like this. But it also shows just how easy it is. Because when you have that level of fame and money, you literally have every resource at your disposal. If you had been following Naomi's social media, she left California, her home in California, hired a private plane, went to Florida to surprise her mother for Mother's Day. And then on her way back to California, she decided to take a pit stop in Minneapolis to see what was going on. And why? Because she was curious. She wanted to know. As an adult, I've always felt that we are not static beings, that our learning is not over. And when you're cushioned by so much wealth and fame, it's, it's so easy to fall into that trap of not, not expanding your horizons and curating them in a way that isolates you from all, like, political fewer, right? Right. Like, you don't have to engage. And you can make the argument that maybe because Naomi is, is black, that, okay, well, fine, it makes sense. But that is not the point. The point is that she too, even though she is a black woman, there is still more for her to learn and she's curious and wants to do the work. These qualities that we know about Naomi, that she's curious, that she's funny, that she's principled, you can, I mean, these come out in the way that she's approached this topic, the way that she's engaged on social media. It feels very authentic to her. Back after the US Open, people tried to pit her against Serena. They tried to get her to say rude things about her in public. There was this dichotomy between the two, and Naomi repeatedly refused to engage in that. 
she always boosted up Serena, even when she was probably very hurt by what happened. She's always been mature for her age, and she's always been aware of the way that racism operates. And so observing her social media has been an absolute joy, because obviously this is a very painful time, but she has been able to take it with humor, with pointed satiric humor. She's been quoting people left and right, shaming them across the timeline. I admire what she and Coco are doing as well because they both know that they're opening themselves up to a lot of potential abuse and harassment and they're still doing that with that knowledge. And especially Naomi is someone who does read her mentions. You can tell based on her Twitter feed. Meanwhile, Coco Goff, 16 years old, has decided that she will always use her platform to speak to issues that are unjust. It's so strange to sit here and say that this is not new for her. Because we've seen this. Like, she's been on her social media championing black rights and LGBT rights for a good couple of years now. Right. Back when she was 14. Yeah, she's before just folks newly even knew about her. She was out here doing, doing Insta stories about Juneteenth. She's now for Pride Month. She's posted about gay people and being there as a support for... <laughs> championing gay rights at 16 years old, this is truly where it's at. And my only concern is that when I see folks get so excited about the prospect of what Coco could do and could mean for tennis as a politically active and aware top player for decades, as being the champion of the moment, the champion of this era, the the person who's going to take the torch from Billie Jean and Venus and run with it in the future. That is a big crown to wear for somebody who is just 16 years old and for somebody for whom the ability to wear that crown will unfortunately depend on her results on the court. Because if Coco doesn't win or do well for like a a few years or she burns out, then she doesn't have that platform as she does now. And so there's so much more at play with Coco Gauff She's so much less secure in her footing as a tennis player, say, relative to Naomi Osaka. And so that, to my mind, makes it a little bit more impressive. Not that I'm, not that I'm comparing the two, but maybe it's the the folly of youth. You know, like not... Maybe the, the fearlessness of yeah. being 16. Not every 16-year-old feels that way. But like you said, there is already so much pressure on her athletic abilities. And now we've added this sort of social consciousness pressure, the things that some people will expect her to do throughout her career. And I think it's really important that white people especially don't expect black people to to perform outrage and to do this type of work throughout their lives because you feel that they should. Remember that Toni Morrison said one of the functions of racism is distraction, right? It distracts black people from doing their work. Coco's work is being a tennis player. And so we've seen, you know, misogyny can be distraction as well. Billie Jean King sacrificed so much of her career to build a women's tour. Venus and Serena Williams have had to answer questions and do work that white players don't. And so I think while we can praise Coco and Naomi for making these statements and taking stands, it's important that we don't expect it always. I think we can move on to Venus and Serena here on the back of what you just said, Mm. because... It's felt like a, a generational shift in terms of kind of a, like a, a baton being passed, a torch being passed between the Williamses and a new generation of, of Naomi and Coco. Because for a while, 
and I say for a while, this really has only been going on for a week and a half. But in the first few days, with everything going on, Naomi and Coco were the ones speaking out. Francis Tiafo was there. And the only thing we saw from Serena at the start was her appearance in that Francis Tiafo video. And then up until yesterday or the day before, we hadn't really heard from Venus Williams. And folks were wondering, why aren't they doing more? Right. And it was so unseemly to me because, like you said, these women have been doing the work for years. Right. And so it's a it's an expectation now that they will come to the fore once more. They're expected to just do it. And it's not just doing the work, it's emotional labor as well. Like there's mm-hmm. no way to, to quantify the emotional toll that being a black player in tennis at that level has taken on these two women throughout their careers. And then when you consider that their religion specifically prohibits any kind of political involvement. Right. This is something that frequently gets overlooked by us as well. And I wanted to do some reading just so I understood. Because we we also wondered privately, like, like what's going on? Where is Venus? We wouldn't dare say publicly. I, in a sense, I understand why the initial impulse is to look to Venus and to look to Serena. And so once we thought about it, we then went and did some more reading about what the actual Jehovah's Witness religion is about. Right. Jehovah's Witnesses are supposed to remain politically neutral based on what the Bible teaches. They don't run for political office. They don't vote or participate in any action to change governments. This is according to JW.org. And so they feel that this guidance is from the Bible, that they're loyal to God's kingdom over worldly governments. And that the solutions to government problems come from God. Right. So in that context, what Venus and Serena have done throughout their career is already a bit beyond the pale of what their religion teaches, right? They've already stepped outside the lines to be politically active, to support the Equal Justice Initiative, to make statements on political issues. And racism is a political issue, whether you like it or not. It's a social issue as well, of course. But what we're talking about is politics. So we're asking, you know, when people are saying Venus needs to say something, religion may also play a small part in their hesitancy sometimes. I don't know, but I think it's important to at least acknowledge that. Or maybe they're at home saying, this is the perfect chance for one of you youngins to step up. Right. And maybe they're biding their time, taking a few days before dipping their toes fully into that water. Mm-hmm. What really directed us to this Jehovah's Witness angle was watching Serena and Alexis in their live appearance on Serena's Instagram. Because throughout that entire segment, Serena kept coming back to her faith and how her faith has helped her deal with all these difficult situations that she's been put in against her will throughout her career, so many of them having to do with race. She kept coming back to it over and over again, and then that set the alarm bell off, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is, she's telling us, she's sitting there and telling us what this friction is for her. Right. I don't know that I've ever heard her speak so poignantly about her faith and so openly. Obviously, she was in a very comfortable situation with her husband there. It It was interesting to see. But Venus did come out this week with a long Instagram post where she, I feel 
was more personal than she normally is. She acknowledged the the pain it causes her to watch these events and then have to kind of come up with a public response. She offered readings that people could do. Links to donate. The Equal Justice Initiative to donate. What was incredible to me about reading that is I could hear her voice in my head as I was reading the words. And it was really something. And it did feel like somebody who had observed these events and the many decades before this and and thought about it and come come up with what she really wanted to say rather than posting a black lives matter hashtag or whatever and for the people who have been upset about the all lives matter thing with venus totally get it but she did finally add hashtag black lives matter at the end of her post so it is not unclear where venus williams stands Mm -hmm. i mean the audacity of questioning venus williams on racism is is like a little wild to me. I'm now tempted in hindsight to to think of Venus's All Lives Matter kind of quip that she made as kind of like a leave me alone. Like I do not want to get involved yes. with this. We just talked about how her religion prohibits her from being political. I don't think she thought too intently or was up to speed necessarily on just what that meant. No. No, you, and you've seen Venus in press. She wants to get out of there. And at the time, I don't think that Venus Williams knew that All Lives Matter was this dog whistle, a way to discredit what Black Lives Matter means. In 2020, if you don't understand what Black Lives Matter means, you are being deliberately obtuse. Other players that we've heard from, Francis Tiafo and his girlfriend, Ian Broomfield, put together this video rackets down hands up that involved most of the current and former black tennis players and it was i mean i i don't even have the words to describe these things if you haven't seen it yet watch it again with that video people were like where's madison you know it's 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 a strange weird impulse to target all the black players and demand of them to do what you expect them to be doing. Mm. But we saw Zena Garrison, Laurie McNeil, Katrina Adams, Serena Williams, mm. Sasha Vickery, Sloane Stevens, Mal Washington. And Ian Broomfield, Francis's girlfriend, is a great tennis player in her own right. She won the uh, national doubles title in 2019 at UCLA. Sloane Stevens has also been very active. I know at first people were like, what's Sloane going to do? Where's she been? But man, she has been tweeting literature. She's been explaining to people what defund the police means. She has been extremely vocal about what's going on. Sasha Vickery, who has been out here for years. Felix Ojeeliasim posted a video. A lot of players have gotten in on this. Taylor Townsend. She appeared on Tennis United with Francis Tiafo. Typically, that show is hosted by Vashik Pospisil and Bethany Maddox-Sands. And it features one ATP player and one WTA player, and they... They put a little show together. This one, the powers that be had the good sense to take Bethany and Vashik off that and just have these two speak about these issues. Taylor Townsend, watching her in that segment broke my heart, frankly. Because she was brutally honest. She said, I don't think it's going to get better in tennis. This is just how it is. Things are not going to change. She wasn't necessarily talking about tennis, but just in life as well Mm. for black people. And the way she recounted 
what it was like for her on a daily basis heading to tournaments, about how she gets mistaken for every single black woman on tour. Mm-hmm. At one point or another, she has been mistaken for every single black woman on tour. Um, like, imagine thinking Taylor Townsend is Coco Golf, right? They couldn't look more different. But as you've mentioned before, black players throughout history in tennis have been mistaken for other black players who often look absolutely nothing like them. Whether or not they look like each other is irrelevant. Well, right. There's literally only five or six black people on a tennis grounds at any given time. Tennis players, mm-hmm. I should mm-hmm. say. And so if <laughs> you just you just got to be better. Well, it's clearly a lack of effort. I think it bears mentioning that Vashek and Bethany, who are normally the hosts of that show, did not promote this episode at all on their Twitter, and I think that's that really sucks. Still, the days after the episode has been released, no mention from either of them. When they've mentioned every other one. Oh yeah, the ones that they're on. So uh, you well, know, this is this is part of being an ally. And it's so easy. It's a retweet. It's a click of a button. You don't even have to quote it. This is what we're talking about. The incredible lack of effort there wasn't even that and the lack of curiosity and the lack of doing anything that doesn't center yourself the narcissism that comes with a professional athlete is truly astounding even when you haven't played at the upper levels of the game oh oh wow you we do need a little humor on this episode thank you i do think at some point we should go through naomi's quote tweets because it will add a little levity to the uh, the proceedings. Along those lines, the name of this episode, the title of this episode is I Hope That Fish Eats You. And uh... <laughs> this is from Naomi Osaka quoting someone who said, sports and politics do not mix, replying to Naomi. And in his profile picture, he was standing with a large fish. A very large fish. Beside him. David has since deleted his tweet after he was flamed by the wealthiest sportswoman in the world. The other day, someone told her, racism is not one-sided. Stick to tennis. And she responded with a picture that said, Harry Potter and the audacity of this bitch. And man, J.K. Rowling's antics over the past few days have just added layers to that. (laughs) Just yesterday, she responded to a Japanese caller, hello caller, with a picture of Dora the Explorer that said, I cannot stand this puta. (laughs) Naomi, she said, my condolences to you. I know it must be hard to be illiterate. (laughs) And I really respect that she has not deleted any of these. (laughs) So Naomi, you know, these are really difficult and, and serious times, but Naomi has added some humor This is clearly how she gets through. We talked about how folks by default automatically expect black people to be doing the work. What have the people outside of the black tennis players been doing in tennis? Mm, Well, some of them have been supporting Black Lives Matter. Some of them have been silent and some of them have been uh, sort of in between. Somebody from whom we've heard not a peep is Andy Murray and that silence Let me tell you, it's deafening. If you're of the opinion that Andy Murray should be speaking about this, especially because he has been such a champion for women's rights in sport, you are absolutely warranted in feeling that way. And I'll go even further. Not just Andy Murray, but Judy Murray. Judy Murray has retweeted Francis's video and then that's it. 
Meanwhile, she's on social media all day, every day. Like, I do not want to see or hear about Duncan Murray, the forgotten brother <laughs> in the attic, when all this yeah, is going on. Yeah. I really do not. I was, I have to say, I have been surprised that Andy hasn't spoken out. You have been a little bit more on this kind of big four thing than I have. I was prepared to be disappointed, and I understand that what they're going to say is probably going to be insufficient anyway. So I've like I, I, I totally get it. I totally get that they should be held to a high standard because of who they are. But listen, I was prepared to be disappointed. That doesn't mean that we should not speak about it. Right. Because so many times I saw folks respond to my tweets or other tweets and say, oh, well, I'm not surprised. This is what I expected. Okay, you're just muddying the waters here. Your lack of surprise is doing nothing to advance anything in this moment. It adds literally nothing to the conversation. Right. On Blackout Tuesday, it was Tuesday of last week, right? (laughs) The members of the big three did say, I mean, it was really their first response to this crisis, right? At this time, folks were like, what are they going to say? When it's going to happen? And then within an hour, we hear from Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer on that Tuesday, all within an hour. And combined, they shared three black squares, five words, and one heart emoji. Now, Nadal and Djokovic shared more on their respective Academy Instagram and Foundation Instagram pages. But this felt like a collaborative effort of nothing. Right, because it was tweeted around the same time. I do wonder why Novak and Rafa outsourced a lot of their response to their like their subsidiary company, so to speak, their foundation and their academy. I don't know why it wasn't on their main account, but it did seem that there was some coordination, be it from the ATP or from the three amongst themselves. It was not uh, sufficient. It didn't really say much. It didn't really represent much to me. And I know a lot of people are saying, well, what do you want them to say? And a lot of fans are doing a lot of unpaid labor in defending their faves, which I don't know, like who's paying your bills? What, why are you wasting this time? It is true that these three men have done great work with other issues. They've fundraised for bushfires in Australia. They've given so much of their time and resources to combating COVID-19. They do so much around the world. Right. So this isn't to say that the big three are like bad dudes. You know, it's more complicated than that. It's, it's- about showing curiosity. It's about existing in a workplace where your black colleagues, of which there are quite a few, and also your black fans. I mean, spend a day on tennis Twitter, and you can see there is a huge swath of Nole fam, Raw fans, and Fed fam made up of black people, Mm -hmm. right? Like, black people are tennis fans too. Listen to your fans, listen to your colleagues. And I have, like, two major things to say about this. One is that... The three of them have done a lot of good in the world. I do want to say that there is a difference between philanthropy and activism. Those are distinct. Both have their place. What we're asking now, and the the Overton window has shifted so much in the past few weeks, what we're asking for now is justice. We're not asking for philanthropy. We're asking questions about how we can change the world in a structural way, not on an individual level. So that's one thing. Precisely, because we're asking and expecting these folks to decenter themselves. Philanthropy yes. necessarily centers them in the middle of this. 
Right. We you, you then have your fans just raving about how awesome you are because this is your resume of philanthropic efforts, right? You're such a great guy. But for you to become an activist or engage critically, be curious about the world around you, that's that's happening right this minute. That requires you to take a step back and consider how you yourself fits in within this whole uprising around the world. Right. And wealthy people have been doing philanthropy since there have been wealthy people. And a lot of that has done a lot of good in the world, but it also hasn't really threatened their position in society. Right. It, so being a part of working toward justice requires that you look at how, how have I benefited from anti-black racism in society. I certainly understand how I, as a white American person, have benefited. I can see that now. It takes work. It requires you to consider how you've contributed to it as well. Right. Despite all your good intentions, despite all the good that you've done around the world, we need to come at this from a place where we are all culpable in our own way. Right. Nobody exists in this world without contributing to racism. More specifically, everybody has unconscious bias toward some group of people. That is not something that anybody is immune to. And so my hope in this moment is that everybody can look inward and see the ways in which their their unconscious bias, their conscious bias, have been put out into the world to oppress people. And just because these three are rich, these four, Andy Moore included, just because these four are super rich, super privileged, and do all this good work in their lives does not mean that they're exempt. Right. The So that was my first point. The second point I wanted to make is that some people said, you know, how do you expect a Swiss and a Spanish guy and a Scot to fully understand American racism? And one of our extremely intelligent Twitter mutuals, Hypotamuse, made a great point that Anti-black racism is sufficiently common across the world that it's not unreasonable to expect Europeans to understand it and to have seen it in their societies, right? Anti-black racism is not something that only happens in the United States. A unique brand of it happens here, but it exists in these societies in which those people grew up, right? It's Despite not Despite what Sasha Bain will have you exactly. believe. Exactly. It's not a foreign concept. It's not enough to sit here and say, oh, it's a them problem, because it clearly no. isn't. I mean, it's a we problem. If you're living in one of the countries that invented chattel slavery, that participated in the transatlantic slave trade, how are you going to say you are, you just don't get racism? You, you know, like that's a, you're telling on yourself, you got to try harder than that. And a point you made recently was that a 34 year old like Rafa, like me, is not done learning right and a lot of fans of of the big four well the big three more so like to treat these guys as if well this is where they grew up this was their education this is what their family's like and we just got to deal with it we just got to accept it but like you're not done learning at 34 maybe your personality is formed but it doesn't mean that you're hopeless it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be curious to take in new things to engage with things that make you uncomfortable. Like, this is part of being a global citizen. Like, people try and use that word, that turn of phrase, as this great signifier of themselves as being good people, right? 
Mariah had mm. it in her Twitter bio for a long time, saying she's a global citizen. Like, okay, what does that mean? Right. You know, it's, it's kind of like a castaway, throwaway thing. Like, if you are truly a global citizen, then at the very least, when something like this is happening that affects your colleagues and your fans, the bare minimum is not three black squares, five words, and one heart emoji. It's just not. Not when you have every single resource at your disposal to learn and engage with these issues. Naomi Osaka could have just gone back home to California from Florida. She decided to take a pit stop in Minnesota, despite COVID-19, despite everything that's going on, at personal risk to herself, to see what was going on because she wanted to know. She was curious. Where are these men's curiosity? Mm. Let's talk about the Americans for a moment. Lisa Raymond and her sidekick. See what I did there? Her sidekick, (laughs) Ali Kick. I have noted here on this agenda a pair of imbeciles incinerated by Chanda Rubin. Is that an accurate representation of what happened? It is, because I think we have moved beyond civility, uh, tone policing. These two are damaging. What they're doing is engaging in dog whistling. What they're tweeting is racist, plain and simple. They've been going on and on these past few weeks about violent protests, about crying about how it's a shame that looting and rioting is trending when what should really be trending is the unjust death of George Floyd. Meanwhile, we, we've, we're existing in a space now where these conservative actors realize that they must acknowledge that racism is bad. Yes, it's That they must acknowledge that the death of this black man was unjust. And it's, but I'm then now going to pivot to all my dog whistles. Right. So the frame has shifted, right? So these two feel like they do have to acknowledge that racism exists. But if they portray it as uh, one bad actor, a bad apple, one individual situation that was awful, then they don't have to account for and try to understand the history of racist violence in the U.S. And so by foregrounding these violent protesters, looting, riots, just separated from the anger and the facts about what happened, that makes you a provocateur. That makes you someone engaging in racist language. And so the the great irony is that they were complaining about rioting and looting trending, but they were tweeting those words repeatedly, contributing to the reason why those words were trending. You know how trending works? <laughs> like... The more times this hashtag is mentioned, it's more likely to trend, which is exactly what they were doing. They've realized that how to play this game, because it's a game to them, frankly. How to play this game is that you need to initially explicitly disavow racism and the death of, say, George Floyd. You need to make sure that that is on your timeline so you can then deflect from everybody who comes to you with your racist dog whistles and say... I didn't say that. I've already said that I think killing black people is bad. I've already said that racism is bad. So you can't undercut my position Mm -hmm. here. Mind you, this is someone who only several months ago said that Colin Kaepernick should leave the United States based on his beliefs. She retweeted something that expressed the wishes that Obama supporters would get AIDS. And she has since apologized for it and deleted it. But she did not... She didn't lie. She said, yes, 
I retweeted that, but uh, now I realize how wrong it was. This is somewhat like a history of pretty fucked up views, right? Wherever Ali is, Lisa Raymond is too, and vice versa. There's a lot of, oh, oh yeah, we donated. We are really supporters of this cause, but we don't like rioting. Like, of course, we don't know where they donated, if they donated. They don't view racism as a system. They view it as this one incident. Lisa Raymond is Ali Kick's coach. And man, this this stuff got weird. This week it got rather weird. Ruben has been engaging with both Ali and Lisa in an incredibly, just a more generous and more civil way than anyone should be expected to do. But really one of my favorites. This will enter the canon. The, the... <laughs> I mean, this is the shot heard around the tennis world. Chanda says, Lisa girl, let me fix this tweet for you. How is the murder of an innocent black man by police justifiable behavior? It's not. Period. Vast majority of protests are peaceful. I've seen it. Some protesters are also fighting looters. Please don't encourage people to both sides this. So there it is. That is, su- that is the perfect tweet, right? Because even if some protesters have rioted, where is the sense of proportion? Every single night, we've seen police in full body armor, rolling tanks through American cities, shooting rubber bullets, which rubber bullets does not do justice to what these things are. People have lost eyes. They're shooting chemical weapons into crowds. The If you can look at what's happening and think that a bunch of burned buildings are equivalent to the incredible state violence that's being perpetrated on protesters i don't i don't understand you i don't get it to me that is a distraction the latest thing that happened with kickgate (laughs) is that a couple nights ago i saw chanda quote tweet an account that i i didn't recognize it had a bunch of numbers the original account was black li which i guess is black lives black li and then a bunch of numbers. 18138274. And the the name of the handle was Black Lives Matter. And they responded to Chanda saying, Chanda Rubin is literally deleting all the negative comments towards her. That's messed up. Chanda quote tweeted and said, We both know I can't delete others' tweets. And I'm really sorry that your career has been beset by injury. I know what that's like. It's what forced my retirement. I just hope you don't allow your disappointments to make you a, a bitter person. I was so confused. So I was like, okay. What is going on? She, Chanda seems to know who she is speaking to, but none of us knows. And what later dawned on us was that she believed she was speaking to an Ali Kick fake account. <laughs> Ali responded, hi, Chanda. I didn't write these tweets. A friend of mine did. She wanted to defend Lisa and I didn't stop her. I asked her to take it down after I saw them, but she can't get back in. It's not a time for negativity. I hope you and your family are doing okay during this time and hope to meet you soon. Have you ever seen a bigger L on Twitter? I mean, this this is where it got weird, right? This was deeply embarrassing and just incredibly odd. Now, on the other end of the white lady spectrum... No, but oh. let's let's pause for a second to recognize the work that Chanda Rubin is putting in. Because so many of Lisa Raymond's doubles partners and pals from the past, some of whom have large followings and platforms, have remained completely silent while 
Lisa Raymond and Ali Kick have been carrying on all of this. Yeah, and one of them on is Twitter. Uh, silence is not exactly characteristic to her personality. Just saying. Chanda Rubin has the bandwidth to deal with this nonsense in the Twitter streets to still appear on air for Tennis Channel, talk about this stuff, to talk about the the really unimportant stuff about tennis right now. Right. To organize a roundtable on Game Set Chat right. with Zina Garrison. To still co-host Game Set Chat and do all that. Like she is, when does she sleep is what I want to know. <laughs> but she still had time. Queen Chanda still had time to make sure Ali Kick knew who was in charge here. Now on the other spectrum of white lady business, Christine Everett. She was uh, an unlikely source of joy this week. And uh, I mean, unlikely is uncharitable because Chrissy has clearly been making the effort for a while now. She hasn't been wrapped up in Martina Navratilova's anti-trans rhetoric, which I mean, okay, that's a low bar. But Chrissy has been vocal in the past few weeks about being horrified by what's happening and acknowledging that there is much for her to learn. She's, she's been a lot more vocal in the last couple of years, politically, with everything that's been happening in her country and at her White House. Yes. Chrissy grew up as a Republican, as a religious Catholic. This is a departure for her. And it's, it's clear that there's a lot that she needs and wants to catch up on. But I feel that she's been putting her money where her mouth is. Also, literally, <laughs> Chrissy Everett is in her 60s. And still curious. This is what I'm saying. We do not stop learning. Just because you've arrived at a certain place in your life, it does not mean that you cannot evolve and change your way of thinking, change your worldview, engage with new things. And based on her behavior recently, when Chris Everett says, I'm going to read about all this, about the 13th Amendment about, I'm going to read Angela Davis. (laughs) I don't know if she said all that, but I believe it. I believe that she actually cares about catching up and being aware. And you know why I believe it? Because Christine Everett, America's sweetheart, publicly donated $500 to a charity for black trans women experiencing homelessness. Like, this is 2020, right? This is a new world. For some people, they might be listening and be like, okay. Right. It, and, I, and I get that. Again, like this is I not the Olympics of activism here, yeah. right? But I'm ju- the point in mentioning this is that this time is a call to action for white people to be better allies. And if you weren't an ally before or trying to be an ally before, to situate yourself in this whole conundrum, to see the ways in which you participated, you oppressed black people through your actions and thoughts and beliefs and your silence in the past. And with her statement on Instagram, it's absolutely clear that this is somebody who is ready to genuinely put in the work. And for what it's worth, we find that impressive. That said, she then goes on to quote tweet Venus Williams's statement and marvel about how articulate she is. (laughs) Yeah, so this is not the first time. Now, today, a few people responded to her and tried to explain why the word articulate is so charged as a way to describe a black person. And she seems to to get it. You know, she acknowledged that, oh, wow, uh, like I didn't realize that. 
And again, that's a step in the right direction. But the important part here is, as a white woman, historically, the impulse is to get on the defensive. Mm-hmm. And to not be open to being corrected, to being wrong, to accept that what you did is, pardon the language, fucked up. Right? Right. And the, I don't know if it's my place to give this leeway to white folks at this moment, but you all have to decide for yourselves on a case-by-case basis who is deserving of that good grace, right? <laughs> oh, but yeah, the thing yeah. that I look for is if somebody is consistently making the effort. It's not realistic for white people who are engaging with these issues in a real way for the first time to then put every foot right. It takes a lot of like granular, microscopic analysis but here is one moment where if you put the body of work together and you can you can be able to judge somebody's intent it can be productive Mm -hmm. if you didn't know you didn't know but now that you know do better don't do it again yeah right like and that's sort of what i hold myself by as well all right moving on to alexis ohanian's announcement this week that he would step down from the board of directors of reddit the company that he co-founded and recommend that they replace him with a black person. This was when I first heard about Reddit, I didn't know what was coming because I think the biggest critique of Reddit is that they have fostered white supremacist groups for years, mm-hmm. right? I didn't think this was the announcement that was coming. And so there's there's two real reactions to this story. And for a lot of folks, they seem to be separate reactions that didn't coexist or have a relationship Mm. between each other, but we feel that they do. So the first one is Alexis Ohanian is doing something that is is good. It's unusual that a white person in a position of power actually removes themselves from a situation to then elevate a black person, as opposed to just hiring a black person to fill a role. You know, like they're creating a space for a black person where they once were. You know, okay. white people yeah. generally don't give up that power. Well, no, and there's a lot of talk in C-suites about encouraging diversity, but how often do does one of those people actually give up their seat, mm-hmm. right? Like, that doesn't mean that they surrender their place at the table. Yeah. They just want to invite black people or people of color into a, this world that already exists. Yeah, and we've seen so many times how corporate handling of these issues is tokenism. It's just to to quiet the storm. Right. You'll have one or two black people hired or promoted and that's it. You're making sure that the the focus is not on you. You're deflecting with that kind of action. So it's different and good in that regard. And so he was praised by a lot of people for that. And then a lot of folks were a little bit more cynical, more skeptical, saying, well, you founded this company and this company has perpetrated untold racism on virtual communities and have had a real effect in in fostering and catalyzing racism and white supremacy. Right, and has offered a safe place for a lot of these groups to convene. Yeah, and so and, with Alexis resigning from this this position, some could see it as self-serving. Sure, right? because easy Alexis does not, is not going to suffer from this, right? He is sacrificing, yes, and he is committing at least a million dollars of his stock dividends to Colin Kaepernick's charity, Know Your Rights. So this is this is a gesture. But the other like competing criticism is that Reddit has a serious problem here. That the CEO has known about these issues, 
there's this group, there's a subreddit called Against Hate Subreddits that has been bringing, uh, you know, providing a directory of hate groups on Reddit and asking, what are you going to do about this? What are the moderators doing? Why are you not shutting these down? And so Alexis, to his credit, actually did share that open letter written by someone from the subreddit Against Hate Subreddits, which calls out the CEO for allowing these groups to flourish. And, you know, to be clear, Alexis was not the CEO during that period. He was on the board. It's a, I mean, it's, it, this is a really interesting thing. So Alexis and Serena did a live discussion on Serena's Instagram and revealed, you know, just in sitting there together, revealed things about their relationship that was fascinating, about his reasoning behind this move, how he felt that when his daughter grows up, who is a mixed race young woman, but who Americans will view as black, what did I do during that time as a white person for my daughter, right? And so this is one thing that Alexis felt that he could do. But there are limits to this approach, right? It's not, sure. it's not right. structural change. He said on the, on the live that this is in, quote, the best business interests of every industry, especially VC and tech, VC being venture capitalism. And, quote, if, if the market is saying you need to change, they actually will. So there are obviously huge limits to uh, this sort of market-based activism because very often the free market is not... I mean, the free market is not a moral thing, right? No. And it doesn't arc toward justice. It's also <laughs> propped up by many institutions, and those institutions are, are racist. Right. And so we also know that venture capital and the tech industry has a huge part in, in creating businesses that are chipping away at people's labor and employment rights, at creating a less equitable society, at creating precarious and dangerous work. We know this. So that, to me, that is, that's a limit of this. See, you know, the idea that venture capitalism and the tech industry can lead this sort of liberation movement. At the same time, I don't want to be too uncharitable because I think Alexis is coming from the right place generally. And I think he does try to understand what it feels like to be his wife in particular, what it will feel like to be his daughter. Um, the, you know, Serena said something about how white people should get comfortable with the pain that black people feel all the time, with the discomfort, with the humiliation, with the pain that comes with being the, the target of racism, mm -hmm. right? And so if feeling uncomfortable engaging with these issues as a white person right now feels tiring and taxing after a week, a week and a half, that is not a lifetime. It is, mm -hmm. It's a decimal with a lot of zeros in front of it of a lifetime. And so you've got to be in this for the long haul and, and get yourself used to it. One last tennis-related thing before we move on. Some of you who are on Twitter may have seen this week that Courtney Nguyen apologized for her past use of transphobic terminology in making jokes using the T-slur um, aimed at people like the Williams sisters, Francesca Schiavone, and this all happened on the 40 Deuce blog. Victoria Zarenka. Right. And mostly back, I think, in 2009, around there. Into, like, 2011. Right. When those terms were being bandied about a little more freely than they are now by people like Christian Siriano and Project Runway. Anyway. If you're at home and you've been listening to this show and you've been wondering over time, why isn't it something that we have talked about on the show before? We're going to engage with that now. Mm -hmm. You may know... Because that's a fair critique if that's something that you hold. And we have actually, 
you know, we have talked about this before and it has never made the episode. <laughs> so you may wonder why we have been silent on this issue and you may have criticized us because of that, because you feel we have a personal relationship with Courtney and that has prevented us from speaking. And that's entirely fair. You know, as you may know, Courtney is a colleague of ours. We speak to her outside of tennis things. And that has no doubt colored the way that we view this issue. This stuff happened long before we knew her. She apologized on the 40 Deuce blog long before we knew her as well. And one thing that always stuck out was that she made this decision not to delete those posts because she felt that it would undermine her accountability. That she kind of wanted to leave it out there as a matter of honor that, yes, I did this and it was a mistake, but I'm not going to cover my tracks. Both of us have not agreed with that position at all. I came to tennis Twitter fairly late as far as most folks who have a, a voice or a platform in tennis right now, right? I, I think I started in September 2013. <laughs> you think? That was very specific for, well, I, I think. I knew it was a pivot after grad school, so that that's mm. how I tracked that time. And not being familiar with Courtney at the time or knowing any of her previous work, I only knew her as the SI person. Mm-hmm. And so when I first became aware of all this and went back and and scoured the Fortitude's blog and found all these posts, it was it was it was horrible. Well, it was shocking because it didn't seem to match the person that we knew now. Well, I'm talking about back then. Mm. Like in that moment it was like how how I don't understand. And the thing that I took away from that experience with engaging with that for the first time was it got me thinking about myself and situating myself in everything, right? I, I wanted to know what was I like back then at that time, just like maybe th- three to four years prior back then. Not that I was out here using slurs against trans people, but it, the thing that stood out to me most was that it really wasn't even on my radar as being a queer person, how could I as a queer person not be considering the plight of trans folks in like 2010, 2011? Like I didn't, I couldn't reconcile how I at that time in 2014, 2015, thinking the way I thought about myself could have been so out of step and not in tune with what was going on. Does that make sense? I guess. And I mean, people were using that term fairly loosely in the late, 2000s that I may not have seen it immediately as dehumanizing, which very clearly now it is dehumanizing and it's horrible. This is not to make an excuse, but I think the larger point here that we're trying to make is like, if you if you feel that our silence on this issue is a detriment to us, that is entirely your call and your prerogative to make that, that assessment. I think in keeping with people trying to do better and trying to be trying to evolve and and make amends for previous mistakes like this is where we're at with the whole situation the apology is not meant for us right we are not trans people we have not suffered immediately from that sort of violent language while i was offended and disappointed i am not out here being targeted every day and having to justify my existence as a trans person right so it's it's not for us to accept the apology however we can have an opinion on the sincerity of said apology. You know, I think she's taken... And also where the apology was lacking. Right. 
So she's taken real steps to acknowledge what she said and take ownership of that, explain that she understands why it was bad and how she will continue to make good on that promise to rectify it. Right? So like that's what an apology should do. Mm-hmm. And so this is, what's felt- hap- this is what's happening publicly now that's matching what we've seen privately for years. Right. I had a conversation with her a few years ago, a very lengthy one, where I uh, I was prepared for her to be like, I don't want to talk about it or not want to answer specific questions that I had, but she answered them all. And in a way that had me coming away feeling like this was somebody who was committed to being an ally, who understood what she had done and just how bad it was. Mm-hmm. So is that something that someone should carry with them for the rest of their lives? I don't know. You know, the criticisms of us are totally, they're justified because we have been really rough on people who have misstepped in this way. But I think the difference here is that you know, some of the people that we've criticized, like Fabio Fognini or <laughs> Tennis Sangren or John Isner, they continue to make the same mistakes. I think that with this apology, Courtney has expressed sincerity and express kind of like a way forward about how she wants to make it better. Not not erase what happened, but... That's a judgment that we can make of her personally. But that's not something that you should then take as carte blanche and feel like we're telling you to feel the same way. You're, you're absolutely within your rights to not accept that. Right. So we just felt it was very important to acknowledge it. Because I think, you know, when you create a platform like we have and have called out people pretty vociferously for being transphobic, homophobic, racist, we are going to be held to a standard. And so it's really important that we speak on this topic. And I don't know, I mean, we can only express empathy for people who were injured by language like that and who have suffered in a culture that perpetuates violence against trans people. Where the apology fell short, was not including explicit acknowledgement of the the racist part of those posts. Right, that some of those posts were aimed at the Williams sisters that using the word, you know, the T-slur in conjunction with black women takes on an intersectional angle, right? It, that especially in this time when riots and protests are happening all over the world for the survival, the right to exist and live freely for black people. And then when you consider that black trans women are dying at such a disproportionate rate compared to damn near any demographic that you can think of, that their lives are so much more imperiled. This is something that I, I, would, I was looking to see addressed. In conclusion, if you felt that our silence on this issue has been untenable, given the ethos of our show like we absolutely hold dear that the show does anti-racist work it's something that we've we've consciously tried to make front and center over the years if you feel like that or silence is incongruous with that like we we get it we also do not believe in cancel culture when folks are legitimately making strides to be better it's up to you to decide if that's enough for us, based on our interaction and conversations, like we believe that Courtney's contrition is genuine and that she's absolutely taken steps to be better over the years. But 
we're not going to tell you whose apology to accept and who's not to. No. Whether you feel like this second public apology should have come sooner, that's fair. Whether you think it fell short of being enough, that's fair. Like These are all decisions that you have to make for yourself. Moving on to the non-tennis section of the episode, but still very much in keeping with what we've been talking about, I think it's really important to situate the events of the past few weeks in the history of racist violence in the United States, not to force people to relive all the stuff that a lot of you know um, and relive that pain and suffering of actually learning about this stuff. Just really quickly, like since emancipation, the United States as a nation state has been active in perpetrating violence on black people, state-sponsored violence, um, state-supported violence, even if it wasn't perpetrated by the state. You know, we got the 13th Amendment in 1865, which basically legalized servitude as long as that person had been convicted of committing a crime. It legalized people working for nothing while in prison. It created this situation in the South where black people were imprisoned for loitering, for jaywalking, for crimes that really didn't exist and put to work for the state, basically a, a legalized, a re-legalized form of slavery. Mm-hmm. We saw Reconstruction in the South, where black people were elected to national office, where black citizens gradually began to generate wealth that could be passed on to generations. And through Jim Crow, through the Klan, through the Tulsa race massacre, through all of these horrific acts, every small piece of progress was cut down. So please educate yourself on the history of the United States. This stuff isn't always talked about in your history books. The history of the United States is built off of free labor and getting black people to create economic wealth for white people against their will. And with the abolition of slavery, America needed to find a way to replace that economic contribution of black people, in effect. And so all these laws were enacted. The police force itself, the concept of the police force, is a direct response to black people being free on the street and keeping white people safe. And so one of the overarching thoughts that you should keep in your mind whenever somebody's engaging with you or if you feel you're in a good faith conversation, what's being preserved here is white people's safety, their ability to feel comfortable. So throughout the the end of the 19th century, we see police forces begin to be incorporated, some private, some public sector. What I think is important to understand is that the police did not always exist, right? And they certainly didn't exist in this iteration. In the South, they were often often an offset of these slave-catching posses, which turned into groups of police who would arrest Black people for ridiculous reasons. In the North, police, private and public, were often used to shut down labor disputes. You know, this includes a lot of white people coal miners striking in Massachusetts. The police were often used as a way to protect private enterprise, private property. The police, as we know now, is a really an invention of the Industrial Revolution. It's not a natural way of, of living. It doesn't have to exist the way it does. And so what we've seen in the past few weeks is this incredible shift of the Overton window from... You mentioned Overton window before. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain what that is yeah, for so folks who aren't familiar? Basically, the Overton window is this idea of kind of all of the discourse that's acceptable in a given time and place. So what are the ideas that can be shared? What what are the ideas that make sense to people? And what are the, the policies and opinions that 
could possibly be acceptable to the general public. In the past few weeks, we've seen defund the police make its way into this window. You can look at it as a frame. Defund the police is not something that had any sort of political import really before now in the mainstream. And so we're having discussions about what does defund the police mean? Does it mean abolition? Does it mean divestment? Does it mean reform? And it does kind of mean all of those things. But you can see that popular conceptions of the police force, of this bad apple theory, all that is not necessarily a natural state, but a product of the culture that we grew up in, especially as Americans. And throughout those many decades, there has always been resistance at every moment. And all resistance is met with counter-resistance. You can see, of course, like Black Wall Street in Tulsa in 1921, 35 blocks of Tulsa, Oklahoma was destroyed. Between 150 to 300 people were killed. Just the, the incredible wealth among black citizens that was lost forever. Black Panthers being murdered in their homes. In 1985, the Philadelphia, the Philadelphia police firebombed a city block because black communists were living there. So like at all times there are resistance movements, there is extreme violence by the state, and this is kind of the history of this country. Does this feel different? Is something that I feel a lot of folks are right. are grappling with right now. And no less than Angela Davis said that she has never seen a global confrontation of racism like this in her lifetime. We have people in Rome lining the streets, Amsterdam, Germany, Greece, all right. over the world, which speaks to your point earlier about how global anti-black racism is. And people say in, in New Zealand and Canada, they may see parallels to anti-indigenous racism as well, right? We're, in, we're smack dab in the middle of a culture clash. And the fact of the matter, the events of the last month have shown that protests do work. When folks tell you that they want to police the way that protests are happening, that, okay, fine, you have the right to be upset, but do it in these ways. Channel mm-hmm. it in this way. Those ways don't work the same way as protests do. Because those ways are protected by systemic racism. And it's also based on a mythology of the civil rights movement as this utterly peaceful, docile movement. Martin Luther King champion civil disobedience. That means breaking the law, right? That was the point, was to confront laws that were unjust. I mean, people who protested in the civil rights movement were battered and beaten. This was not a peaceful movement in the sense that they were brave, put themselves in dangerous situations, and were beaten and sometimes killed for it. This is why language matters. We had a private discussion about the utility of defund the police. It is important that language and messaging is as clear as possible toward the stated goal. Like civil disobedience, th- these, these movements, these names, the way we call these things can so easily be co-opted to then be turned against us. Right. I hear you. We're uh, sort of on different sides of this because people have questioned like the rhetorical usefulness of defund the police because it is a bit confusing and it can mean several different things. I feel... As a slogan, it's working right now because it's getting the conversation happening and it's actually getting real defunding happening in certain places. It is, but we know that America exists in a dichotomous political landscape and the two sides, as much as they're just two sides, they do not play by the same rules. 
So whereas defund Planned Parenthood is plain as day, we know what we know what that's about. <laughs> they will mm-hmm. then use that same language to muddy our waters. Right. Like, it's not an equal playing field. To be clear, there is a historical movement toward police abolition. And some of the people saying defund the police are on that side, right? The idea that the police are an instrument of the state. People who believe that modern policing is not necessary, it's not natural, but it's rooted in maintaining the interests of the elites of a society, right? And what that entails is enacting violence on poor people and black and brown people. And there's a good argument for that because you can see it. Like, believe the evidence of your eyes and ears, right? Not everybody who says defund the police believes in complete abolition. There's also this idea that defunding the police means delegitimizing the police as as the authority, divesting, reducing funding, reforming. There's like, there's a lot encapsulated in that slogan. And so I get why it is confusing, right? Because this is not a, a monolithic movement. You don't know what every protester and what every organization wants as the outcome to this movement, right? It's, it's impossible for something this vast to have mm-hmm. one outcome. Yes. On the reform side, there's body cameras, people want better training, divestment, um, reducing police budgets, diverting that money to public transit, public health, all these things. People saying, why do the police get 70% of a city budget? That's a legitimate question. But reducing that by like 200 grand, that's not going to do it. There's also the idea that we can reform police departments by really like changing the types of officials who respond to certain calls. So get an entire group of mental health specialists, social workers, victim advocates, a separate division to deal with traffic offenses that are not armed, that are not police officers. That makes sense. You're talking about a lot of minutia here. Yeah. But that's not how a slogan is digested. No, of course. But how could how could any slogan explain all of those competing ideas? Well, maybe when the Democratic caucus is kneeling in quinta cloths <laughs> in mm. Washington, D.C., they could be more specific about what they're doing. I My thinking on this is squarely focused on November 2020 and how an unclear messaging in this highly political, highly volatile time can be used to undercut the protests that are actually working. Sure, sure. I mean, Joe Biden has already said he is like a very, very mild reformer. That's his position. Nobody is surprised by that. His concern is getting a Democrat elected, winning both houses of Congress. That's it. But when Joe Biden is president... When Barack Obama was president, we had a racist police force. You know, like, that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. So when does it change? Like, how long do people have to wait? No, but you you forget about the slogan and do the work on a state-by-state, county-by-county basis. Like, you, there is not going to be a federal unicorn to come and fix all these problems. That's no. not what's going to happen. No. And so when all of this gets wrapped up and muddied in a general election, Democratic-Republican war of ideals over a slogan and what it actually means that serves nobody but to my point about how protests work the the changes that we've seen already the marine corps is denouncing the use of the confederate flag which that's not nothing what how was this a thing before 
the Marine Corps of the nation that won the U.S. Civil War, that defeated the Confederate flag, was like totally okay with the Confederate battle flag being flown on its bases and everything. This should not surprise you. I know. It really should not. But this to me is like, not not exactly a victory. My point is it's not nothing. Okay. (laughs) Because we've seen the, the pride of place that the Confederate flag holds in conservative circles. Mm-hmm. You know what is a real victory? Is that NASCAR denounced the use of the Confederate flag. Yes. Now that is surprising. The Minneapolis City Council this week voted to disband the police force. That is massive. <laughs> so that is actually a big thing. They voted to dismantle the police force and kind of start from scratch using a community-led model of public safety. Similar to something like uh, Camden, New Jersey. The protests got Roger Goodell to say that the NFL was wrong. Well, did he though? He didn't. He didn't. But that alone is some movement. And it, it backs up the point that money talks. Goodell clearly sees that his bottom line is imperiled, especially in tandem with COVID 19 and what the league was already facing with getting players back on the field. This now is an added complication. It's a cynical way to view it, and I absolutely feel that it is a cynical response. <laughs> like it's, it's not genuine. It's about self-preservation. Yeah. But if it moves toward actual concrete change, who cares? All right. We talked on this episode about how language matters. We just talked about it with respect to defund the police. I want to talk about now how the respectability politics of how one should protest. That's what we're being met mm. with on, on the conservative right. How that language is designed to, to divert. It's to designed to distract. It's designed to preserve white supremacy. Yeah. And it's very clever because, like, who wants to see businesses burning, whole city blocks on fire... Like, that makes white people extremely uncomfortable. What you're really saying is that you want to preserve the status quo and your place in it. Right. Again, like I said earlier, how can you not see the disproportion of, of violence? You see businesses being burned down, but you see people losing eyes, being beaten, like physically punched by police, NYPD trucks literally running people over. Um, uh, an old white man being knocked to the ground and bleeding from his head in Buffalo, New York. Like, how many acts of unprovoked violence by police do you need to see for you to comment? Like, do you right? know? Do you know why Klansmen wear hoods? It's because we do. Let's let's have a little history lesson. Because here. congressmen, police officers, white people of great power were some of the founding members of the KKK and active participants over time and so you really couldn't have a police chief appearing out and open at a clan rally when he's supposed to be policing black people like they're they're very astute about that part about it (laughs) right so when we say that the hoods are off what that means is that either that person has been exposed and humiliated for a racist or that means that it is now safe for white supremacists to remove their hood and, and uh, you know, we, in the past four years in this country, it has become, we talk about the Overton window, like things have crept into becoming acceptable again. And white supremacy has become acceptable. And when people say that racism is institutional, this is what it means. Sure. I mean, those that's like tip of the iceberg stuff, right? Like that's 
that's things that most people know or knew was horrible. It's it's flamboyant yes, racism. Yes, but they, they but, don't accept that it still exists today. Right. The insidious nature of it is that racism exists in our institutions. It exists in gentrification, in urban renewal, in redlining, in the way that we vote. Voter suppression, like you see it in Georgia right now. We saw it in Georgia the last election cycle with Stacey Abrams. Closed polling stations, opposition to vote by mail. Republicans don't want you to, to early vote. They don't want you to vote at all. They'll take every precaution to make sure that as few persons as possible vote. Gerrymandering, redistricting, the Republican appointments of partisan judges. Like this has been Mitch McConnell's explicit goal of this Trump presidency. Right. I mean, he said this. He said that he purposely delayed Merrick Garland's Yeah, and it's, it's as, as bad and terrible as the Supreme Court theft was this is existing on all levels of government in every state right and so it's not only racist it's also ableist it's anti-poor it's a lot of different intersecting oppressions at the same time right the system is stacked against black people getting a fair shot at the polls like that much is clear like you say to somebody well if you don't like what's happening go vote and change it that okay. is that is that is not a better option than protesting in the like, streets. Oh, can I, the a, last the can last week has shown that 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 is yeah. not a better option. And so yes, the protests are designed to fuck things up because they need to be fucked up. If not now, when slouching toward fascism. And the real kicker here is that with the American political system, with the electoral college, everybody knew that this moment of reckoning was coming. Minorities are getting bigger in Texas. They're getting more. There, there are more Latinos in Arizona. There are more Latinos in Nevada. More in Texas. The Republicans saw this coming, but instead of changing their party platforms and engaging with new voters in a different way, in trying to actually be better, they decided to quadruple down on their racism. They and would just prefer you not vote. Actually, yeah. They've decided that white supremacy, I mean, that's what it boils down to. Like, it's white against all else. They want to maintain that power. And that's what the, the, the appointments of all these conservative judges is about. That and abortion. So thank you for staying with us, if you have. Um, in the past few weeks, I've been thinking about ways to help and also ways to learn more. And I know white people are always asking, like, help me, help me learn, educate me. And... <laughs> What you should do is just figure it out on your own. But, you know, it's literally never been easier. Right. There's Google. And then on top of that, there's Google Scholar. Maybe folks don't know about this, but if you put into your search bar, Google Scholar, you'll be taken to this portal where you can read academic stuff for free. Mostly for free. Yeah. Um, I mean, next on my reading list is Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. I read Policing the Crisis by Stuart Hall and others. In grad school, I'm going back to it. This stuff, by the way, you can find free on Google as PDFs. If you can, and if you feel so inclined, contribute to bail funds, Black Lives Matter. There's so many GoFundMe for people who were injured during the protests. There's GoFundMes for Breonna Taylor's family. It's everywhere. Go look. Um, If you're a white person wondering how you can help, there are so many ways you can help. Most of all, be prepared to get uncomfortable and stay uncomfortable, lest that fish eats you. <laughs> I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. 
I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Thanks for listening, and till next time.